Please listen carefully. Salutations, toppers, and welcome to episode 70 of the Turn of Phrases podcast. Thank you for giving me some of your time today. Today's episode is still brought to you by some of you, because today we're doing the rest of the suggestions I received from some toppers. I don't really have anything else to say here this week, so I'd suggest again that we get right to it and learn today's phrases, origins, history, and more. First up today is Healthy as a Horse, suggested by Chris from the Gravity Beard podcast. I've mentioned it before, and I still recommend that you check it out. This one means really healthy, and while there's not much to this one, I'll share what I found. As for a specific origin, no one seems to have an idea for when or where it came from. But the idea behind it is fairly straightforward. It came from the part of old-timey times when pretty much the most important thing a farmer could have was a good, strong horse. They needed their horses to be strong and healthy so they could do the work of plowing and hauling. Strength and health went hand in hand. A healthy horse was a strong horse and a strong horse was a healthy horse. Also, horses were some of the largest animals that many old-timey-times folks would ever encounter, so seeing a large, healthy, muscular horse would have left an impression on most people. I can't tell you who said it first, who wrote it down first, or when it was first used. Sorry I don't have a lot of details to share, Chris, but at least you'll know if someone tries to pull the wool over your eyes with a false origin story for this one. It's simply an idiomatic reference to the fact that horses are strong when they're healthy. Thanks again for the suggestion, Chris. Now, let's get salty. Salt of the earth is our next phrase for today, and this one also came from Moxie over at the Your Brain on Facts podcast. It's used to describe a person or group of people that are moral, unpretentious, reliable, or genuine. This is another phrase that can be traced back to the Bible. We find it in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 13, which says, Ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. The book of Matthew is thought to have been written sometime between 60 and 90 AD. This verse became idiomatic basically because of how much salt was worth in old-timey times. Salt could preserve food or make it taste better, and in a time without many options for making food last or taste good, this made it worth its weight in, well, salt. Wars have been fought over salt, and some roads and cities Yes, entire cities were developed as a direct result of the trade of salt. For example, Solnitsada, which was founded around 6,000 years ago and is believed to be the oldest town in Europe, was built around a salt production facility. Soldiers in ancient Rome were sometimes paid in salt, or given an allowance specifically to purchase salt. This salt allowance was called a salarium, 
which is the word that salary derived from. Salt has been important to pretty much all of humanity since it was discovered, which was sometime before recorded history. So it's been a minute. Anyway, back to the idiom itself. The believed first use in print was thanks to our often-mentioned pal, Geoffrey Chaucer. In his 1386 work, Summoner's Tale, he wrote, quote, Ye been the salt of the earth and the savor. End quote. As with many other phrases attributed to him, even if he didn't really write it down first, his popularity helped to cement the saying into the vernacular. So let's move on now to another suggestion from my mom. For the love of Pete is an expression I personally say a lot, but I honestly had never really thought about where it came from. It's a way to show frustration, and in the grand scheme of phrases, it's not that old. The Oxford English Dictionary tells us that for Pete's sake came into use sometime prior to the 20th century, and this led to the phrase we're looking at, which appeared in the vernacular by about 1906. As a bonus, and because it fits in with the other two, in the name of Pete shows up around 1942. This phrase, well, actually all three of them, are what is known as a minced oath. Basically, it's a self-censored no-no word. Specifically, it's a self-censor you do right before saying the cuss word, the change in which typically becomes of someone around you. For example, maybe you stub your toe while you're at your grandparents' house and loudly exclaim, Son of a biscuit! The trinity of Pete minced oaths came about as a way to make an exclamation without taking the Lord's name in vain. That's right, old Pete is a stand-in for the big man. But there was a specific Pete that people began talking about in place of God, and that was St. Peter. So next time you're frustrated and you blame Pete, just remember that St. Peter is helping you avoid blasphemy. Thanks again for the suggestion, Mom. Now, let's weave some baskets. Underwater basket weaving is another suggestion from Moxie, and it's used to describe an easy college class or a bad business idea, and it pretty much always carries a negative connotation. It basically implies that someone is taking the easy way out, or making the wrong choice. So, when Moxie suggested this one to me, she said that her husband thinks that the idiom came from the movie PCU but she thinks that Randall Monroe coined the phrase. I'm assuming she means the American cartoonist and author, so sorry if I'm wrong. I guess I should have asked her to clarify. Anyway, the movie came out in 1994, and Monroe was born in 1984, so he's older than the movie, but alas, the saying is older than him, so neither of them are the source. The saying actually has its roots in actual basket weaving. The American Philatelist is the oldest continuously published philatelic journal in the world. And in case you're like me and had no idea what philately is, it's the study and collection of stamps and other postal items. What does a stamp collecting magazine have to do with basket weaving? Well, in a 1956 issue of the magazine, there's an article about an Alaskan village, which states, quote, 
Underwater basket weaving is the principal industry of the employables among the 94 Eskimos here. By way of explanation, the native reeds used in this form of basketry are soaked in water and the weavers create their handiwork with their hands and raw materials completely submerged in water throughout the process of manufacture. End quote. The water made it easier to weave the baskets, which leads me to my next point, willow baskets. Now, willow baskets aren't woven underwater, but the dried willow rods must be soaked in water until they're soft enough to weave. So here we have two examples of how water makes basket weaving easier. So it makes sense that underwater basket weaving would make a good way to say something is easy. The 1950s were ripe with references to this idea. Take this excerpt from an October 4, 1953 article of the Boston Globe. Quote, Any snap course in school is underwater basket weaving. End quote. Now, in that article, underwater basket weaving was in quotes, so it obviously was in use before this time. And before moving on, I have to share the title of this article, which was about slang used by the younger folks of the day. It was called, In a Hepster's Lingo, The Girl Who Likes to Neck is a Giraffe. That sounds like the 1953 version of a Kids These Days type of article. Anyway, another usage was on June 4th of 1956, in an article from the Los Angeles Times. It was called College Pro Football Hit. And while talking about how student-athletes got special treatment, it said, quote, Why should he be given a better deal than those students who are attending college in order to get a real education? Majoring in underwater basket weaving or the preparation and serving of smorgasbord, or particularly at Berkeley, the combined course of anatomy and panty rating. End quote. Well, college being wild is certainly nothing new. Okay, so now we know that this idiom was well established in the vernacular by the 1950s. But that's not all, folks. Basket weaving had already been in use to imply something was too easy for at least 30 years. The Watchman in Southron was a weekly paper that was published in Sumter County, South Carolina from 1881 to 1930. In an article from August 6th of 1919, we find this quote, Higher education is becoming very practical indeed. It includes everything nowadays, excepting, of course, Greek and Latin, from plumbing to basket weaving. End quote. Now, I know this doesn't mention the underwater part, but the author was using some sarcasm to discuss how college courses were becoming too plain and easy. Moxie, I hope that answers all your questions about this idiom, and thanks again for the suggestion. Now it's time for today's familiar quotation. Toppers, today's familiar quotation is from Elaine de Botton. Here's what he had to say about suggestions. Quote, Pick up any newspaper or magazine, open the TV, and you'll be bombarded with suggestions of how to have a successful life. Some of these suggestions are deeply unhelpful to our own projects and priorities, and we should take care. End quote. Thank you, Mr. Botton, for giving us today's familiar quotation.
All right, toppers, it's time for today's For Better or For Words, love advice from old-timey times. Just a quick disclaimer, remember that this advice is over 100 years old. While some of the advice is still good today, I don't necessarily agree with every tip I read from these books. It's for entertainment purposes only. With that out of the way, let's hear from the ladies first. Don't interpret too literally the obey of the marriage service. Your husband has no right to control your individuality. And now for the men. Don't be conceited about your good looks. It is more than probable that no one but yourself is aware of them. Anyway, you are not responsible for them, and vanity in a man is ridiculous. All right, toppers, that's going to do it for episode 70. Thank you for lending me your ears today to turn some phrases. As I always do, I hope you enjoyed the episode and you learned something along the way. Check out my website, turnofphrases.com, to find out information about the show's social media, how to send me topic suggestions, how to support the podcast, and for details about the music I use in the show. If you had a good time listening, please consider subscribing or leaving a rating and review. Also, if you know someone who'd enjoy the show, please tell them about it to help spread the word. If you want bonus stuff, check out my Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes. Thanks again for listening to the Turn of Phrases podcast, researched, written, hosted, and produced by me, Brisky. Until next time, toppers. Well, let's still keep those suggestions coming. Toodaloo! And now... This is... Let me rephrase. It is thenceforth good for nothing. Nope. This made its worth... Nope, 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 nope. For example, sonisata. Nope. Sonitsata. Soldiers in ancient Rome were sometimes paid in salt, or given a... <laughs> this phrase... Nope, 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 nope. The change in the word typically becoming of someone... Nope. The change in word typically because... No. The Amer... Uh, there's, no, there's no way I'm going to say this word correctly without stumbling here. Philatelist. Philatelist. Philatelist? Philatelist. 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 Now, willow baskets aren't more... It was called pro... Nope, that's not what it was called.